Good morning. How are you all doing? Good. All right, let's get right into it. Um, so this week we're going to be covering the three different aspects of what Jesus went through on the cross, both the physical, emotional, and the spiritual. And I'm going to start by covering what exactly happened physically to Jesus as he was being crucified. Uh, something that I learned for the first time is that the, the very first experience that Jesus had with physical pain regarding his suffering for us on the cross was actually in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Bible tells us that Jesus' sweat began to turn into blood. And I always, taught, I always took this as a metaphor of some kind, that it wasn't literal. Turns out it is literal. That, uh, I find it interesting that Luke is the only physician who wrote one of the Gospels, and um, he's the only one who mentions this, but uh, only in the most extreme circumstances of severe emotional distress to somebody's uh, sweat start to turn into blood. You're, you actually start to sweat your own blood, and it's only in the rarest of circumstances, and he's one of the only people recorded to have actually done this. Um, so right off the bat, before he's even arrested, we have this sense of how much stress he was going through and how far he was willing to go for us that he would go into this extreme state of emotional distress. After this, he was arrested and went through his first beating, which was uh, minimal, minimal compared to what was coming next, even though to us it's uh, probably far worse than any of us have endured. Uh, the order for scourging is given, and I don't know if you know anything about scourging, but scourging is a pretty awful thing when you actually learn about it in detail. Uh, you might just know it as whipping someone, but they, they use these long, thick leather ropes, and at the end they have lead beads. They have two lead beads on it, about this big, and uh, they whip you with that, but in addition... A lot of the times they put glass on the end and broken sheep bones in order to tear the skin. And what exactly this did, the, the small beads would bruise the skin so badly that after a while, after you know 30 lashes, the skin actually starts to break open because of how badly you're bruised. I don't think I've ever even heard of somebody's skin doing that just on a bruise. It starts to open up and then the, the leather takes over and... Um, rips away at the skin and the, the sheet bones are in there tearing tendons away. It's revealing muscle. Uh, it's actually recorded that during most crucifixions, by the end of it, you're able, by the end of the scourging, you're able to see people's internal organs through their back as they're being crucified. That's how severe this is. Um, <laughs> I have kind of a weird analogy for this, but uh, as I start to study this stuff, I see it in everyday life, which is kind of a scary thing, but uh, on my birthday, my sister always hangs streamers from my door frame. So when I wake up, there's like streamers all over my room. And this year, they just happen to be red. And um, <laughs> one of the websites I was on described the, the, the leather as doing this to you. It makes long ribbons of bloody flesh. And now I look at the streamers and I'm like, oh, that's gross. Because that's what it looks like to me. And I start to see it in everyday circumstances like that. Um, and even though I know I've ruined birthdays for a lot of you now, I'm just... Now every birthday when that happens, you can be like, Jesus did that for me. So it's actually a win-win situation. Um, after a while, after they're, they're done beating him, they get bored of that. Um, and by the way, the Jewish custom is only to do 40 lashes, but they never really followed that. And since Jesus is one of their more hated victims in this, it's uh, widely assumed that he got much more than 40 lashes. So once this is all over... They, they start to play the mocking game with him, which uh, Landon is going to address further later. But they're, they're just humiliating him. And one way that they do this is by putting a big purple robe on him. 
um, because he claims to be king of the Jews, and they do this to mock him. Um, while they're doing that, they put the crown of thorns on him, and they, they beat him, and the thorns get squished into, his, into his, uh, his scalp right here. So he's bleeding through his back. You can see internal organs, and the thorns are squishing his scalp. Um, and one thing I never really considered is that the purple robe actually plays a big part in the, in the physical crucifixion because uh, by the time that they're taking it off, the skin has started to scab over where they had cut him. Uh, it's soaking in tons of blood, and so when they rip the robe off him, like the Bible tells us they do, they strip him of the robe, it actually pulls the scabs off, it opens the wounds again, he continues to bleed just like he was at first, if not even worse. Um, from there they take him and he's just beat again uh, and I know there's a lot of beating and a lot of the time we take it for granted so I was trying to think of a time that I've been beaten and I don't think I have been um, I don't think I've ever been beaten by someone so the best I could come up with is that one time I wrestled Kevin Plum and um, <laughs> it's, it's a really dumb mistake to make um, and he kind of like hit my shoulder in a weird spot one time and uh, that's, that's the best I could come up with because he's a pretty hard hitter. But um, So now, now every time I think of the, the crucifixion, I see hundreds of Kevins in Roman uniforms beating Jesus, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not, but it helps, it helps visualize it. So you've got all these Kevin Plums, these big, strong guys beating him, hundreds of them. Um, and... This, part, this part's crazy to me. After all of this, after he has sweat his own blood, he's been beaten, all this stuff, he's actually not even physically capable of carrying his cross anymore. And that's something that we've always been taught, that Jesus carried his own cross. He was actually physically unable to do this because of how weakened he was, because of how drained he was. Um, from there, they, uh, they took him to the cross. They nailed his wrists and his feet and. This is something that also goes into far more detail than I ever thought. They actually nail right in between these two bones right here, and uh, not enough to fracture it, but they nail in between the bones, and those two bones are what hold your entire weight while you're up there. Up next, they, they nail the feet. They put your feet on top, of one, on top of one another with your knees bent like this, nail straight through both of your feet and into the wood. Um, and I always thought, you know, it's kind of nice of them to give you some, some room with your knees so you can push up and get some breath because you can't breathe when you're down like this. It's kind of nice of them. But then um, I looked into it some more, and it turns out that they nail right next to a huge nerve in your foot. And so when you, when you push up, you're actually cutting the nerve. And the nerve, the nerve shoots pain all the way up your arms. And when you're up, your, your arms come up more, so you have to twist your wrist, and that cuts the nerve. The nail cuts the nerve in your wrist also. So all four of his limbs are just screaming with this pain from his nerves being torn in half. Um, and he has to do this to breathe. He also has to lift himself up in order to speak. And the Bible records seven statements that he makes while he's on the cross, all of which are essential to what we believe in, things like, it is finished, probably one of the most important things that Jesus ever said. Well, no, the most important thing Jesus ever said. It is finished. Um, plays a huge role in what we believe in. He had to go through a lot of physical pain just for that tiny aspect of it, just to speak. Um, also keep in mind that at this point, remember, his back is completely open. You can see organs. Everything is just a bloody mess. And every time he pushes up, his back scrapes against the wood. So it splinters. It infects it. All this bad stuff going on. Um, 
And by the end of it, they, just to make sure he's dead, they, they stab him through the side. Spear goes through both his lungs. Part of his heart spills out blood and water on the other side. That's what the Bible tells us. So that's, that's essentially what they, the very short explanation for what they do at a Roman crucifixion. But um, I want to make sure that we're, we're getting this for what it actually means. I'm not up here just ranting about the physical death of Jesus because I enjoy it, because it's definitely not a fun thing to talk about. But um, when we understand this, it's so much more applicable to what we believe in. It actually means something. And I've heard people say that the reason the cross is so awesome is because it's a symbol of how much people are worth. That's completely not true. It's actually a symbol of how worthless you are as an individual. Um, That Jesus had to go through all of this, plus spiritual and emotional, which we're going to get to later, he had to go through all of that just to redeem you because that's how wretched of a people we are. So as we sing this next song, there's a, a lyric that says, uh, how does it go? The blood thing. Your blood has washed away my sins. That's right. So when you hear that, be thinking about it and think about the fact that it was not because of how much we're worth. It's because of how worthless we are. And it was essential in order for us to be saved. So Jesus did it for us. He did it for himself. So... Yeah, I'd be thinking about that while we're singing the song. Good morning. For those of you who don't know, I'm Landon Martin. I'm usually back there. So um, I'm going to talk to you guys about the emotional aspect of the cross. And this really just hit me just studying this. Uh, I was studied through Matthew 27, and um, I encourage you just to go through that and just look at all of what Jesus has done to us. And we really should be thanking Jesus as... Uh, we sang, and um, like Caleb said, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, his uh, before his crucifixion, he was greatly emotionally distressed, and he was just crying out to God, and just so emotionally just done for, and he just, um, he had that hem- hematidrosis, and that he was bl- uh, sweating blood, and he was so physically drained even before his road to his crucifixion. And um, in Roman culture during Jesus' time, um, the cross was an immense just symbol of shame. And as Galatians 3.13 tells us that, um, that Jesus faced this shame of the cross and that there was a huge symbol of shame where we wear cross necklaces and we, we, we wear crosses in our culture and um, that's Jesus to us. But for Romans and for Jews in that time period, it was just shameful and um, because the punishment of crucifixion it was set aside for the worst people in Roman society for criminals murderers treasonous people runaway slaves and prisoners of war and Jesus was just put down to that status and um, in Matthew 27 starting in verse 15 um, the crowds exchanged Jesus for um, a notorious prisoner as verse 16 says named Barabbas and this man was a was a bad man, and there's this stark juxtaposition between the two men, and um, that Jesus is so righteous, and Barabbas was so bad, and that um, Pontius Pilate even asks in verse 23, "What evil has Jesus done to that you want to exchange him for Barabbas?" And um, I just thought back to elementary school when you're playing kickball and picking teams, and that one person that always just gets picked last. And th- your self-esteem just plummets, it seems like. And you get so depressed over this little thing of, I got picked last in kickball. And I feel like 
Jesus, like at the beginning of, of his journey, he got picked last in kickball and he just got traded for the worst player and that we get so depressed over that and that we have no reason to. And Jesus, what he did for us and what he was exchanged for this horrible person. And um, uh, during Jesus, uh, when Jesus was scourged by the Roman soldiers, um, the physical torment was horrible. And like Caleb said, and um, he was just treated like an animal in front of these huge crowds of people. And that just, the physical pain is horrible, but just being beat like that in front of everyone, in front of all these people that have seen you and care for you, just just being in that such low position. and um, The humiliation of the cross focused on creating as much vulnerability for the victim as possible. Um, a whole, an entire battalion, or 600 soldiers, uh, stripped him and dressed him in this scarlet robe, gave him um, the crown of thorns, and gave him a reed, a pathetic little reed, and that was supposed to symbolize a staff, and um, a, a kingly staff. And the soldiers proceeded to spit on him and beat him, and they beat him with the, that reed, that staff, that symbol of power, the symbol of Jesus is coming back for us as king, and they just mocked him repeatedly. 600 people. That's just crazy for me. Um, well, modern images of Christ on the cross... They portray him with, with a loincloth. But in reality, most victims were just completely naked on the cross and completely vulnerable. And even if you had to do little things like just go to the bathroom, like that just got so embarrassing. I know he was, I know he was physically just in torment, but just add on all these things of vulnerability and that just in front of everyone. And um, Jesus was placed on the cross in between two robbers. And... John MacArthur's commentary, he describes that these weren't just merely thieves. They were rebels and brigands, and they plundered as they stole. They weren't just mere thieves, like, oh, I, I took your stuff, haha. It's just like they plundered and they did horrible things. And um, just as to this Barabbas thing of he's placed with the, these two people who are just um, so sinful, and he was so righteous, and just he never sinned. Um, people walking by at the cross, they they just shouted insults at him, and verse 39 says that um, they derided him, and uh, dictionary.com defines deride as to laugh at in scorn or contempt, scoff or jeer at or mock, and just those verbs are just so strong and just so horrifying, and I get, I get like self-esteem drop like kickball and like just when one person is talking to me like that. But when all these crowds of people are just shouting and spitting and deriding him, and Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, completely naked, with a sign above his head reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And this was in three languages, so that everyone could read it and mock him. Um, but but we have hope. In Hebrews 12:2, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and he despised the shame of the cross. And Daniel's going to talk more about um, just the spiritual ramifications afterward. You know that moment when you take your cup at the end of it, and you've got like three ice cubes in there, and you're going for one, and you tilt it up towards your face, 
and it starts, and you're, you're hoping that one's going to come out, and you tap it a little bit, and then they all come out and smash all over your face. The, and you know that moment when, as a person, you contemplate doing something you know is iffy, and you think about it, and you sort of tap it a little bit to see if you can get a little bit, but not too much, and suddenly it all falls in your face, and everything's gone horribly wrong. I see in the cross the beauty of the cross in the contrast between the characters that are in the story. I see three main characters. I see man, there's God, and there's Jesus. And what man has done is he's tipped his glass, and it's all gone horribly wrong for him. And I see in nature there's this, there's this example of exponential decay, and mankind exhibits it, exhibits it as well. Why does it take me three years to rip a seam in my jeans and three weeks to make that seam go from a seam to a hole the size of my fist. When things start falling apart, they fall apart really, really quickly. In, in the story of the cross, we see, we see Judas, and he is the tipping point for humanity. As soon as Jesus enters Jerusalem, things start to get worse for him. The priests start to get more angry. They start to, to conspire to, to kill him. They start trying to find more and more times to trip him up and take him and kill him. And the moment that, it's, that it chips for humanity is when Judas finally says, okay, I'll do it. And he shows up and says, I will betray Jesus. And literally, it all goes to hell. Mankind becomes everything horrible that mankind is. And in the, it is the worst, it is the lowest point in the history of mankind when we are crucifying Jesus. And I see it in the Bible in Romans 1. In Romans 1, three times the phrase, God gave them up, is used. There's this idea that there comes a certain point when mankind tries so hard to get something evil that God will give it to us. And it creates incredible tension between us and the second character in the story, God. We see God is always holy. God is always perfect. God is always just. And it's a very key thing at the cross. That there's a, there is an incredible amount of sin. There's an incredible amount of evil at the cross. And something has to be done. There must be justice and someone must pay for the sin. Humans deserve eternal punishment. We deserve every little bit of wrath that we incur by our sin. And God is just to do this. It says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is righteous, he is holy, and he is just. He cannot stand sin. He cannot, by his nature, just let it slide. Something must be done. And so at this point, we see an incredible tension between God and man. God is holy and just, and he can't handle sin. And man is at its lowest point in the history of the world. Something has to happen. And this is where Jesus comes in as the mediator. Jesus is referred to as the mediator, the reconciler, all, through, all throughout the New Testament. And this is where I see it. It's because he reconciles these two relationships. And it must have been horrible to be Jesus. Jesus gets the worst of both worlds. He gets the wrath of man. He gets mankind driven by Satan, trying to taint the perfect Lamb of God. They are beating him. They are mocking him. They are spitting on him. They are doing everything they can to ruin this man, and it doesn't work. There is nothing through the crucifixion story where Jesus breaks down. 
Jesus does not lash out. Jesus does not turn around and condemn them. Jesus asks God to forgive them. Jesus remains perfect, holy, and blameless, although he is bruised and battered on the outside. And the relationship between God and Jesus is also incredible because he gets the wrath of God. The wrath of God is an idea that cannot be explained or understood without the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that I can say to explain the wrath of God. The Bible doesn't even really try to explain the wrath of God. It has these it, it talks about hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, but really how bad can words go? All I can say is the wrath of God makes the physical and emotional torture look like nothing. The wrath of God is so much worse. And especially for Jesus. Jesus is a man who's lived his entire life, 30 years at this point, with no guilt, no shame, and the conscience of a newborn baby. He doesn't even know what it's like to feel guilty. He's never felt that way because he's never sinned. And suddenly, throughout the process of the crucifixion, he takes on our guilt and our shame. And it's impossible what happens with Jesus. We deserve eternal punishment for eternal sin. Our crimes against God are eternal in scope and infinite in punishment. And yet Jesus takes it in a limited amount of time. It doesn't make sense, but he's God. And it's, it's, it's this reconciling position. And, and uh, in Hebrews 9.15, it, it talks about this. And it says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The spiritual significance of the cross is the point where Jesus takes the, takes the mediator role. He comes between man and God. He takes the wrath of both sides. And yet he remains perfect. And because of it, because he is God, because he is perfect... He reconciles us to God. He becomes that mediator. He becomes that bridge. And he opens up the communication. And he opens up our way to God. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the only life. Because this death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We can't gloss over the spiritual significance of the cross even in considering the depth of the emotional and the physical pain of the cross because the spiritual significance is so much greater. The cross is not merely a physical event. It is not merely something meant to be viewed from the outside. It is something that the Holy Spirit truly reveals to us and shows us the significance and shows us the unbelievable and uncomparable beauty of Jesus in this in this situation. And there is probably there's one of the best passages in the Bible to discuss what Jesus is doing and what he's going to is Isaiah 53. And it talks about how he's spotless. And it talks about how he goes up and he 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 loses all physical beauty. And yet he remains perfect, holy and spotless. Well, my name is Matthew Holbrook, and uh, it is my privilege, privilege along with uh, Dan Martin, to uh, teach the, the high school group here on a regular basis, and along with several other people who help in a variety of ways. Um, it's just a joy to see um, 
these young people go through these years of high school life and, and uh, grow in their love for the Lord and grow in their love for the cross and for the gospel. And uh, I hope you're catching a little bit of, of that here this morning. There is something about the cross. There's just something about the cross. The Apostle Paul said, uh, I desire to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't want to know anything except about the cross and about Jesus crucified. The group just quoted to you most of uh, Isaiah 53. And if you want to look there just briefly, that may be one of the most graphic descriptions of the cross that we see in all of Scripture. In this passage, we see graphic descriptions of the physical suffering of Jesus and the emotional suffering of Christ. And we see the spiritual accomplishment of Jesus at the cross. First of all, from a physical standpoint, we see in, uh, at the end of verse 3, there's a description here that describes Jesus in, in prophetic terms as one from whom men hide their faces. And this was referenced when the guys were speaking earlier that, that Jesus was beaten to the point where he would be unrecognizable. And then in verse 5, there's a, a reference that he was crushed. And uh, end of verse 5, it talks about his stripes. And I think Caleb gave a pretty graphic description of the, the stripes that are being disca- discussed there. And in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And we see the, these, these descriptions of Jesus in his physical suffering. And, and then in his emotional suffering there in verse 3 of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Landon gave such a, a, a good description of the emotional torment that Jesus endured at the cross on our behalf. And then most importantly, as Daniel discussed, we see in verse 4 the spiritual accomplishments of what Jesus did at the cross. He says there in verse 4 that he has borne our griefs and he was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed, but he wasn't just crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him our iniquity, the iniquity of us all. So we see the spiritual ramifications of what happened at the cross. And so in this passage, we see it all put together of what Jesus endured at the cross. There was great physical and emotional anguish at the cross. And we can begin to grasp the, the horrific nature of, of that kind of suffering. But it's the spiritual suffering, as Daniel referred to, the wrathful justice of God that's so difficult to really comprehend. Remember this, that Jesus was the second Adam. Adam... The first Adam was created in the garden. He was created without a sin nature. He was created as as God originally intended people to be created before he was corrupted by sin. And Jesus, being the second Adam, was created, or not created, that was a slip. Um, But Jesus came to earth and was born uh, without a sin nature. He did not have a human father. He was fully man and fully God, but without sin, without a sin nature. He was not born into sin like every other man was since Adam. And Romans 8 paints the picture for us that, that sin corrupts the world and that because of sin, we live in a exists and, and death exists. With sin, everything leads to death. You've been dying since the day you were born. But apart from sin, death does not exist. And Jesus was without sin. He was without a sin nature. Yes, he was fully human, but he wasn't contaminated by sin. He was still living in a fallen world that was contaminated by sin, but he himself wasn't subject to the personal consequences of sin. He was separated from sin. He was, by definition, holy. He wasn't subject to death. 
So what happened at the cross? Well, 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body. At the cross, God the Father attached your sin and my sin to Jesus, and Jesus became subject to the full consequences of sin. He was subject to death. And Jesus' physical death was absolutely the result of our sins being placed on him. But, but here's the thing. The decay and the destruction of this fallen world, the physical death in this world, is, is merely a representation of the ultimate consequences of sin. The real consequences are spiritual. So in Romans 3, when Jesus is referred to as, as a wrath-bearer at the cross... He was bearing spiritual punishment for our sin, bearing the wrath of God. He endured the real thing. As bad as the physical and emotional suffering was for Jesus at the cross, it was the infinite wrath of God and spiritual punishment in our place that was the real punishment that took place there. You know, we're quick to praise God for the the beauty of His creation when we we see a sunset or, or a waterfall and we're in awe of His majestic power. When we see a, a raging storm, we love to speak of his power. In fact, uh, yesterday, my five-year-old nephew, Ezekiel, he stepped on a bee and got stung on his foot. And uh, that caused all kinds of drama. And about half an hour later, he comes limping up to me and, and he, he looks at me and he says, Uncle Matthew, do you think my foot is healed? I said, I don't know, Ezekiel. Why don't you try putting your foot down and walk on it and see how it feels? And he, he walks around a little bit and he looks at me and he says, it is, it's healed. And I said, Ezekiel... What happened? How did your foot get healed? And he said, oh, God healed it. He's powerful. And he's a class act. And I thought, you know, he's, he's consumed by the, by the power of God. And, and, and we all are. We love to speak of his power. And we like to praise God's beauty. And we're amazed by how big he is. And when we stand on the, the edge of the ocean or gaze at the stars, we're just in awe of of all that he's created. And we marvel at, at how creative he is when we look at nature and we see the unique animals and all the components of, of nature. God blesses us through his beauty and through his power and through his bigness and, and his creativity. And he reveals his glory in all of these ways. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. But the same God who makes those sunsets and waterfalls and storms and oceans and stars and galaxies and animals, the same God pours out wrath on unrighteousness and ungodliness. As Daniel quoted in uh, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Consider that God uses the same majesty, the same power, the same bigness, and even the same creativity that we glory in in his, cre- in his uh, blessings in creation, he uses all of the same power in revealing his wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is with that power and majesty and creativity that God unleashes a white-hot, holy, righteous fury of justice and wrath on Jesus in our place. So the next time you see a, a magnificent sunset or you're out in the desert and you're gazing at the stars and you're in awe of all that God is, I, I hope that when we see the beauty of, of creation and the wonder of creation, that somewhere in our minds we're also reminded that, that's, that, that the power that went into creating all of that is the same power that, that directs God's wrath towards unrighteousness. And it's that same power that directed God's wrath on Jesus 
in our place. When we see the beauty of creation, our heart should be refreshed with gratitude as we, as we consider the cross and we consider the powerful wrath that God put on Jesus. You know, there are times I've been accused of, of talking too much about the wrath of God. And to that, I, I plead guilty as charged. Because for me, understanding the wrath of God, it makes God's love so much more real and so much more powerful. And I, I, think, that, I think that when we, 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 end, we, we talk about and we consider the love of God apart from the wrath of God, it, it leaves it somewhat empty. But God's love is real and magnificent and powerful because he paid the ultimate price for us. At the cross, God's love is profoundly demonstrated when he directs the, his wrath that I deserve on Jesus in my place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his son to be the object of his punishment in my place. I think some of the simplest yet most profound lyrics of a song we sing here in this church, uh, Jeremy Riddle wrote the song that uh, refers to the cross where he says, um, referring to the cross, he says, my Savior, both bruised and crushed, showed that God is love and that God is just. It's at the cross that we see the, the justice of God, the wrath of God, and at the same time we see the most magnificent display of the love of God. Romans 6 says that we were slaves to sin and, and consumed by sin and, and enslaved by sin and in bondage to sin, and so therefore we're doomed for this powerful, massive, creative punishment from God. And yet, Revelation 5 talks about the worship and the glory that we would give to Jesus because of what he did. And I would just ask that you would look there briefly at, uh, at Revelation chapter 5. And there's one word in this chapter that I think makes a big difference for us. We see here this, this picture in the future of the 24 elders before the Lamb. It says in verse 9, that they sang a new song. They sang a, a song of praise before Jesus, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, saying, You're worthy to, to be king of the universe, to be in control of all things, recognizing his worth. And then they say why they're recognizing him for that. It says, For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the word that I look at there is, is the word purchase. At the cross, Jesus bought us. He purchased us. And some people get a little confused by that and think that we were, we were purchased from Satan and that we were, we were purchased and that, that Satan owned us and that Jesus bought us from Satan. And that's, that's not a, an accurate view there. We're in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to ourselves. We're in bondage to our flesh. And, and that bondage to ourselves and bondage to sin dooms us to the wrath of God because by God's righteousness he, he must punish our sin. But there at the cross, Jesus purchased us. He bought us out of bondage to our sin. And it says in, in uh, Ezekiel 11 and in, in Jeremiah 31, talks about the new covenant where God gave us a new heart that no longer is, is enslaved to sin but now can respond to his will and fulfill his commands. And we can live lives that are obedient and pleasing to God because we've been purchased by God. The real implications of the cross is that we were in bondage to sin. We were doomed, yet Jesus' death on the cross paid the ultimate price and bought us out of that slavery. And now we're no longer to be, to be slaves, but in Christ 
we're, we're not slaves to sin, but we're, we're children of God. We've been adopted by God. We're not under wrath, but we're under grace, and we're consumed by, by ultimate love, and we come to Him as our Abba Father. And that's why we love the cross. That's why Paul wanted to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. It's not because we come to the cross and, and, and God gives us an easy life and we have riches and, and all these earthly pleasures that are guaranteed to us because we can't come to the cross. And in fact, Jesus didn't die on the cross to save us from the cross. He died to save us from hell and to bring us to God. But we're still to pick up our cross daily. We're to, we're to die to ourselves, put to death our flesh on a daily basis and, and live for Him. Life may have difficulties, but the cross changes our perspective on everything. We've been saved and Jesus is worthy. Worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our lives. And that's what all of life boils down to. Cling to the cross. Run to Jesus. Value Him above all else. See Him as worth more than everything. Because he is, and he's enough. And I hope that when we consider the cross here this morning, that, that that's what we're driven to, is to, to see that as all-encompassing uh, all in our lives and that we would love him even more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to consider the cross and to uh, see the power that you display in the cross and all that you do for us in the cross. And God, I pray that we would be compelled to worship you and to come before you and praise you as we would see all that you have accomplished for us at the cross and that we would love you all the more and live for you um, each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.